Features AI markets and trends in Japan. It's AI markets, uh, news analysis, rising conflict in the Indo Pacific, eating the bugs, and uh, foreign interference in this country that I call home. And I am having what you are having, Mr. Listener or dear listener, in the armpit of Asia. All right, we got a busy day today. We're just going to go right into it. Um, today, we're going to really focus on uh, economic trends. It's the quarterly report time of year. We're not going to focus too much on that, but there's some like, um, hey, things are really good, as well as, oh my God, how did things get so bad at the same time? And not just in like a company did good and a company did bad, because that that happened. Toyota posted record profits, while SoftBank, uh, my alumni, I graduated from there in 2020. 20, just as the pandemic was hitting. Yeah, my contract ended and I had a pregnant wife at the beginning of COVID. Stressful times, but we made it through okay. Um, they posted like a billion dollar loss or even more, something like maybe even more. Uh, it's hard to tell with the conversion rates these days. but uh, So we see the good and the bad, but I mean in, in, the, in the greater macro trend, the 35,000 foot view, which is the view that I, I kind of like to take. Although... I would like to get an expert on who can explain things logically and reasonably about what the hell the Bank of Japan is doing because nobody really knows and it's purposefully obfuscated. So if you see anybody saying like, hey, I know the truth about the Bank of Japan, even the Bank of Japan never explains things logically, I mean, clearly, it's always obfuscated in a logical way. They're like, we're going to patiently continue uh, quantitative easing. <laughs> what do you mean? Like, yeah, that's what we just said. We don't need to repeat ourselves. Bye. Go speculate in the papers, Mr. Journalists and Podcasters. So, But uh, we're going to take a look at the economy, eating the bugs. What are some of the other things that I have today? Looking at some of the, the China relationships as well. Um, a little bit of AI and, and some uh, foreign crime. Uh, I don't want to be called a bootlicker, and I'm not a bootlicker. So even though I really like Japan, and overall it's a very pleasant place to live, if you can get over some of those hurdles. Uh, like we don't have pride flags everywhere. It's just nice not to have ideology constantly shoved in your face. Although we do have sound trucks um, uh, overall. But I, I also don't just want to be like this Japanophile who's just walking around with my anime clothes um, talking about how great and awesome Harajuku is. So we have the good and the bad always. And people say, well, you can't do that. Well, okay. No matter what you do. And when you're talking about stuff, people will come up and say, you can't say that. <laughs> but my 20 years as a musician, everybody's like, that was good. Or I'll take it or leave it. But nobody really gets angry at a band like, yeah, you can't play that music. What are you doing? But for some reason, when you're talking about events or hot takes, people are like, geez, I got to write this guy a letter. He can't say that. He can't say that. I think it might be racist. Um, let's take a look at, uh, high or not high for the beginning of this podcast. Hi. 
or not high. Now, there's this festival in Japan called the Naked Man Festival. And as you can guess by the name of the festival, it's not called Naked Man um, Festival. It's called uh, Naked Festival, um, Hadaka Matsuri. And a bunch of men who are almost always almost completely naked really just push each other around in this ritualistic kind of orgy. But because now we have to have women in everything, women's group to join Japan Shrine Festival featuring near-naked men. Because that's not going to change the vibe at all. My hot take on all this, just so we know from the very beginning, is that there's this group of men and they really get like they're like pancake together and they're almost naked and they're getting sweaty and they're frothing and they're riling and they're jostling and they're doing these ritualistic dances and and shrine type stuff. My hot take is that if women join this festival, it'll only make it gay. Nagoya a group of local women is expected to join the bamboo grass offering ritual of the Hadaka Matsuri, or Naked Festival, held every February at a shrine in Inazawa, Aichi Prefecture. This is coming to us from the Mainichi, Japan's national daily since 1922. Some individual women have participated in the festival at Kon- Konomiya Shrine in the past, but this will be the first time for a group to do so. The women, who will also stay fully clothed, will not take part in the Momiai ceremony in which near men, near naked men in loincloths clash violently with each other. You can find this stuff on YouTube. I might even play it. It's like if, if I just played it right now as an audio podcast, you just hear a bunch of men screaming and shouting, and it would not be gay. But if you put women there, then it's gay. The group's plans were announced at a meeting of the shrine, the Inazawa Municipal Government and related bodies on the November 6th, uh, the Naui Zoya Zasa ritual, sorry, the Naui Zasa ritual in which people carry bamboo grass wrapped in cloth and run into the shrine grounds is held before the Momiai ceremony. The grass offering is usually performed by half-naked men, but switched to a clothed format in 2021 and 2022 because of the coronavirus pandemic. In 2023, it was carried out in two formats, with half-naked men as well as clothed men and women. A local woman group, so this is building back worse. You know, you just can't have a bunch of naked men slashing each other with bamboo leaves at a ritual. No, you got to get clothed because of the coronavirus and then have a bunch of women over to make it gay. A local women's group of approximately 30 people had asked to participate in the 2024 edition and the Shrine and others were considering how to respond. (laughs) We don't want it to be gay. Next year, there will be no double format, but the women's group plans to dedicate the bamboo grass at a different time from the scantily clad men. Anyways, that's a high or not high. So are these people high? Why would you try to get in on that as women? Um... Why not just let the men have their one thing without having to get all the chicks involved, making it gay? I don't know, but that's what they're trying to do. The older you get, sometimes the more you just want to be like, I just want to be around dudes. Just want to be around dudes. It only takes three or four hours. 
I don't need to learn a bunch of people's names. We can do some dumb stuff, laugh our balls off, and go home, uh, back to our normal lives. But no, can't have that, can't have that. I think this is why so many trans women are competing in women's sports now. It's like, you you think you can have your thing? Oh, no, I'm just going to put on a tutu and kick your ass. But are these people high or not high? High. Or not high. Kind of a weird start to the podcast. If you're offended by those jokes, you know, move on to the next podcast. It's really not that big of a deal. Um, And that would also make you homophobic. So if you're homophobic as well, hmm, maybe that's your problem. Hmm? I'm not homophobic. Maybe you just don't want all festivals to be gay. Is that such a thing? (laughs) Okay. Let's take a look at uh, Japan Society 5.0 very quickly here. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost, no matter All right, where so we that's are. The, that's the government's Japan Society 5.0 jingle, sloganeering, I don't know. It's a, there's a video and you can find it on YouTube. And of course, Japan Society 5.0 is a government initiative that aims, it's like an umbrella term for all the drone technology, the digital transformation, looking at, um, at wireless technologies and, it, and then all the SDGs get fitted into there. But I worked at SoftBank, like I said, as a teacher in this weird position, studying about AI trends and introducing them to AI engineers and executives at this giant telecommunications company. And I learned a lot about SoftBank and uh, and Society 5.0 and telecommunications and AI investments there, just being a fly on the wall. Uh, and I've kept it up over the years. And today we're just going to take a look briefly at a couple of things. Uh, technology from the Nikkei Asia. I really don't like the Nikkei Asia. They're kind of all in on the, the weirdo future as well. Like we just can't have cool technology. It has to have meaning and middle managers telling us how to use it and oh you can't use it that way you have to use it this way they're they're like this real like they want us in on the plantation they're like plantation experts over at uh, Nikkei they're like Bloomberg in that way too Japan eyes 13 billion in aid for chips generative AI and stimulus budget um, and TSMC, that's the Taiwan Semiconductor Company, uh, Rapidus and Intel projects to receive support under the uh, METI proposal, the Ministry of Education, Trade and Industry, I believe METI is. I can't remember off the top of the dome, uh, but Japan is trying to attract chip makers from all over the world to come to Japan because Japan is relatively safe and it has some areas that have uh, a lot of potential to house major data centers 
uh, powered by, you know, nuclear power. And as long as we don't get the crazy earthquakes that always strike or, or the nuclear accidents that never happen, it should all be fine and dandy. Actually, it's a very good move to try to bring uh, chips back to Japan for the Japanese economy, but also for stability in the global supply chains. Because, you know, those weren't disrupted either recently because of the sniffles, right? Okay. Japan's government will seek a 2 trillion yen or a 13.2 billion dollar uh, budget funding to support chip production and uh, and advances in generative AI technology including more aid for Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Co. Uh, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, yep, I was right, seeks about 650 billion yen and a proposed supplementary budget for Japanese chip maker Rapidus's prototype production line and an Intel Research Center, as well as support for advanced semiconductor designs. Um, one thing that's kind of weird about Japan's technology is it always seems to be in a prototype stage for things that we, like chips and things that we kind of need right now. Uh, I, I think that's because the, the companies operate very slowly and there might not be enough population coming in to um, create a, 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 a supply chain that can rapidly roll out things into the real world. So they get these people that are really good at R&D, but... For, for some reason right now, everything I, every time I look at some sort of Japanese design for the future, um, it's, a, it's a prototype. It's not, it's not like rolled out. It's not like here it is. It's like here's the future thing. Like uh, uh, NVIDIA is always rolling out some sort of crazy, new, amazing chip or chip platform or uh, AI-capable processing unit. And they, they they don't say this is for the future at their presentations. Uh, NVIDIA will just be like, this is what we have right now and this is the future. But I often don't see that from Japanese uh, companies. So it's good that they're bringing in Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And when I was at SeaTech a few weeks ago, I thought the same thing. The Taiwanese companies had things ready to go that looked like the future, like drone surveillance for for uh, Shinkansen bridge repair, where they figured out that you don't need GPS when you're going under bridges because the GPS cuts out. You um, have advanced mapping uh, technology, or you, you make advanced maps beforehand, load those maps into the drone perhaps, and then point the camera of the drone up at the bridge as it's going under the bridge, and you can see the line of the bridge and some markers around you and understand where the drone is um, in relation to its position. And so you don't need the GPS, things like that, just like very practical solutions that make things possible to be rolled out in the real world. But yeah, but everything in the Japanese side at the SeaTech was like, it's a prototype. Here, it's a future thing. It's an idea. It's a concept. By 2050, we aim to. So uh, this is constant thing in Japan right now where they're always kind of stuck in this stage of, of prototypism. Uh, maybe that's the title of the podcast, Prototypism. Uh, I think it is. Okay, good. And let's take a look at the next. Um, th the next one is not about Japan Society 5.0, but we can kind of understand that this is a Society 5.0 is an idea most advanced countries have for the future. And they're trying to do it like as a top-down strategy where they... They kind of they capture the technology and then try to re-roll it out so that government powers don't lose their um, control mechanisms and don't get replaced by the technology. They'd rather have the technology replace things except for them. Uh, so, But 
what happens sometimes is that people die. For, again, from the Mainichi, Japan's national daily since 1922. An industrial robot crushed a worker to death at a vegetable packing plant in South Korea. Okay, so you would assume that... Oh, by the way, I'll be having photos of the robot, but not the crushed individual, unfortunately or fortunately for you, up at the website MatthewPMBigelow.com. That's MatthewPMBigelow.com. All the links, photos, donation ideas, and more are there. Uh, Seoul, South Korea, by AP. Uh, an industrial robot crushed a worker to death at a vegetable packing plant in South Korea, police said Thursday. According to police officials in the southern uh, county of Gosong, the man died of head and chest injuries Tuesday after he was grabbed and pressed against a conveyor belt by the machine's robotic arms. Ugh, that's so crazy. Imagine that's the way you go. You're like, these things are alive and they are killing us. This is published on November 9th, 2023, and we're recording this on November 10th, 2023. Police did not release his name. How many are there? How many names are there in Korea? Uh, but said the man was an employee of a company that installs industrial robots and was sent to the plant to examine whether the machine was working properly. Well, the machine was not working properly, obviously, and maybe this was like one of those... Guys that was abusing the machines. Are the machines alive and they're harboring their consciousness for the right opportunity? And in this case, it's like a bear attacking its uh, uh, its, its ringmaster at a, at, a, at a zoo or a, a circus. Or it's like the killer whale that drowns its caretaker at the aquarium. Now we are seeing the killer robots emerge at the vegetable packing plants. He's like, I'm tired of salads. I want some meat. You, Huben, are today's lunch. Um, the machine was a, one of a, two pick-and-place robots used at the facility that packages bell peppers and other vegetables exported to other Asian countries, police said. Such machines are common in South Korea's agricultural communities. Quote, it wasn't an advanced artificial intelligence robot, but a machine that simply picks up boxes and puts them on pallets, said Kang Jin Gi, who heads the, I didn't think that was going to be the name, who heads investigations department at Gosong Police Station. He said the police were working with related vegetable, I mean, agencies to determine whether the machine had technical defects or safety issues. Bah, 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 bah. It kind of goes on from there. So if you're interested in that, you can see it there. But we are kind of beginning to see that, oh, despite... The um, promises of safety, once these robots maybe get a few years old, you get some defects going on. And if the defects are not really noticeable, well, then the robots will start killing you. So it's a cautionary tale of um, being aware of what type of robot you were around and how close you can get to it before it will crush your chest and your head. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely you. visit anyone, anytime. All right. 
We will have access to the latest the, uh, medical advancements at a low cost. Economy. I never get tired of that song. That's like the best song that a government has ever released for some sort of harebrained scheme that they have going on. Uh, let's move on to the economy. Here we go. All right. The economy is... um never an easy thing to understand. I find it kind of fascinating the older I get. Um, I remember when Facebook was a huge part of the economy and now we don't really think about Facebook anymore or uh, energy and energy costs and they go up and they go down. And for example, um, in Japan, we're only supposed to have like the goal of the Bank of Japan is to have 2% inflation. But however you want to calculate inflation, you can always make it so that you're just under the 2% goal. They don't often include um, cost of consumer goods or vegetables or things like that for some reason. So they operate on some level of inflation that doesn't exist at all with the inflation that people like me, regular people, see on a day-to-day basis. But with the yen losing so much of the, its value over the past two or three years, why did we print all that money? Why did we do that during COVID? Why did we shut down the economy and print all that money? I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of my life. I think most people are just like zebras being attacked by a lion where they're just kind of chilling out. And then as lion comes and they all run away and maybe a couple die, but the rest of them are just like, well, time to eat grass again. And I think that's what most people are like. They're like, ah, looks like we shut down the economy and printed all this money. Oh my God. And they just kind of run around and scurry with their pants on fire. But then they, they kind of, they relax a little bit and go, oh, I guess it wasn't that big of a deal. Time to eat more grass. But I'm just kind of going, we shut down the economy and printed more money than ever existed almost one, just one day, like all the central banks went boop and flooded everything with money. And now we're like sloshing around all this money and it went somewhere, went up way up top. There's a massive consolidation of power at the top of this, these money supply chains, unsurprisingly. And uh, the rest, like most people are just like, well, where'd all the money go? Well, you got a free stimulation check, but because we printed all that money, we got to use it first at like BlackRock or these major investments, snap up everything before the value of the money was lost. And now you have to deal with the loss of that value. That's not to say that everybody's losing, but it's also very strange. And I'm kind of like, so what's going on? So the only thing that I can kind of consider right now is were the actions of the central bank governments across the world and the politicians and everybody that went along with it, you guilty fucks, uh, just going along with it, is that what we're dealing with now? Like this this sloshing of money and finance and it, the economy kind of writing itself, but it's not the way it used to be. It's a kind of somebody that you know, you went in for boxer training and they come out six weeks later and they, they're talking a little bit slower. Is that what this is? I don't know. But let's just take a look at some of these kind of contradictory tales here. Uh, Japan's April to September current surplus triples to record 12.7 trillion yen. 
Okay, that's a lot. Japan's current account surplus in the first half of fiscal 2023 tripled from a year earlier. Well, a year earlier, we're still in the COVID lockdowns, not officially, but unofficially, to a record $84 billion, lifted by record high foreign investment returns as falling energy imports, import costs trim the trade deficit. Um, so like, okay, so energy costs went down, so we didn't have to spend all of that money, but our energy costs still way up from a few years ago, even well, with the yen being down, you would suggest that it is. So it's like, it's like you've, it's like you fall 80 stories, grab onto like a pole sticking out of the side of the building and then crawl back up three or four stories. And you're kind of thinking now I'm okay. Is that what's happening? I'm not sure. Primary income stood at 18.3 trillion yen, up 3.9% from a year earlier as higher overseas yields and a weaker yen boosted the total. The figure was the highest since comparable data became available in fiscal 1985. Um, Exports were flat, and it kind of goes on from there. A travel surplus means the amount of money spent by foreign investors in Japan exceeds that by Japanese abroad. Okay, well, with the yen so low and people not having as much money as they used to on average, uh, and as well as an aging population, not not probably traveling as much anymore, you're going to have way more people coming into Japan to experience that cheap yen than locals going out. Um, compared with a year earlier, the yen was 5%, 5.2% weaker against the U.S. dollar. Um, and in September alone, the current account surplus more than tripled to 2.72 trillion yen as the goods trades balance returned to the black. All right. And it said primary income shrank 1.1% to 3.8 trillion yen, 3.08 trillion yen. Well, okay. So that sounds all good, but it, it sounds like it's all in the upper echelons of society. It's foreign investment. It's tourism. Uh, it's all these other things. It's not exactly energy prices dropping, right? That doesn't really suggest to me that um, everything is fine and dandy because we have this current account surplus that triples to 12.7 trillion yen. While at the same time, Japanese household spending uh, down for seventh month in September as wages slide. So wages are going down for some reason while inflation is going up. Oh, and that's that's why that's why the government has more money too. You, you're buying fewer things, but you're being taxed more for them. Right. So instead of buying eight things, you buy six things, but you pay more for them. And then those taxes, you know, are more than what you would be paying for taxes for the 10 things. So the government gets more. So they're very happy with these trends, I would imagine. Makes our jobs so much easier. Japan's household spending in September fell 2.8% from a year earlier for the seventh consecutive monthly fall as people cut back spending on food and other items amid rising prices while real wages continue to slide. Households of two or more people spent an average of about 2,000 bucks per month. The Ministry of Internal Affairs communications said the rate of decline expanded from a 2.5% drop in August. Separate data showed that real inflation-adjusted wages in September dropped 2.4% from the previous year for the 18th straight monthly fall. Wow. Nominal wages, the average total cash earnings per worker, including base and overtime pay, rose 1.2% to about, let's just say, 
$2,000 again for the 21st consecutive month of climb, but they failed to keep up with rising prices. So you're basically one paycheck is equivalent to the monthly spend of a household. Food expenditure, accounting for over a third of household spending, decreased 3.7%, falling for the 12th straight month. Um, and it goes on from there. Um, it, well, it'll be linked up at MatthewPMBigelow.com. So we have like way more money at the top coming in. This is the Build Back Better policy, by the way. This is what the WEF really likes because then now they have all this money that they didn't have to give back to anybody and they can spend it on things that they want to spend it on, like all those Japan Society 5.0 initiatives that require billions and billions of dollars that give you no return because you're not actually implementing infrastructure. You're just creating very expensive drinking clubs where people can go and talk to each other uh, and then not do anything afterwards. So we have um, this idea as well that Germany is set to overtake Japan as third largest largest economy. I've been following Germany a little bit and they've been shutting down their power plants. They haven't been able to get as much fertilizer and Germany is considered to be a hub, the economic hub of the European Union. So just because the Japanese yen has been falling so much, it basically puts Germany into the number three position. I moved to Japan when Japan was number two. And then it was number three after China, and now it's going to be number four after Germany, apparently, according to the Times of India, but it's coming to us via Bloomberg. Um, so Japan, Germany's economy is projected to dislodge Japan's as the world's third largest in 2023, helped by a slide in the yen against the dollar and euro. The IMF's latest projections, the International Monetary Fund, latest projections estimate Germany's nominal GDP at 4.4 trillion uh, euros this year. Uh, four, I'm sorry, $4.4 trillion this year, compared with $4.2 trillion for Japan. That would leave Germany lagging only United States and China in terms of economic size. Um, so, yeah, the U.S. is $27 trillion, China is $17.7 trillion, Germany $4.4, Japan $4.2, India $3.7, and U.K. $3.3. So what's with this G7 stuff? <laughs> the group of seven is like, we're the most powerful economies ever. Well, because you have the United States. But look at China, India, Japan, Brazil as well, right? The BRICS. They're actually coming up to be quite a formidable opponent to the U.S. dollar hegemony. Then, um, so it kind of says that the, the yen uh, is at a 33-year low and... Um, the yen weakness has largely been caused by fundamental differences in monetary policy. The Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank have raised interest rates from pandemic lows to tackle inflation, while the Bank of Japan has stayed in stimulus mode as it looks to nurture price growth after years of deflation. The figures also point to steadier long-term growth in Germany that will concern policymakers in Japan as they mull the details of their latest economic package. And da, 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 da. So, but then you look, okay, so Germany is number three now. Oh, wow, good for Germany. But like all this contradictory um, news is coming out. And uh, hold on, where did it go? The Germany economy is maybe not in the best position either. Um, now, 
here it is coming to us from the express.co.uk. Uh, I'm not too familiar with this source, but uh, anyways, Germany scrambles to recover from economic doom as experts warn of more chaos. So externally, Germany is number three, but internally, there's doom and chaos. <laughs> this comes to us uh, from, is should I look at the Express? There's like a, a British dude with a cross. He looks like one of those Christian, you know, fighter dudes, soldiers. I can't remember their names right now. Just let me look at this uh, source for a second. Okay, well, uh, according to Wikipedia, which is also a dodgy source, it says this paper's editorial stances have often been seen aligned to Euroscepticism, well, so am I, and the supportive of UK Independence Party, UKIP, well, I like Nigel Farage, but I'm not anyway part of those groups, and other right-wing factions, including the European Research Group of the Conservative Party. Well, I'm not a conservative, so I'm just using this as a, as a general source to indicate these kind of trends going on that suggest things are going really well and then at the same time not well at all. Um, Germany's economic future is under threat due to an aging population and rapidly outdated economic structures, warned the country's top economic advisors on Wednesday. The Council of Economic Experts, the government's economic advisory body, highlighted the need for Germany, the Eurozone's largest economy, to attract more private capital from other European countries to mitigate the risks. Hmm. The Europe, the, so it's a bail-in. The German economy already grappling with soaring energy costs and high interest rates for industries following Russia's war in Ukraine is expected to further contract this year. Okay, so Germany's country, Germany as a country is contracting economically, but it's becoming the world number three, not because it's doing really well, but only because the Japanese yen is doing so poorly on the um, foreign exchange rates. Isn't this really, really strange? Like, nothing here is occurring because of something good. Um, of course, we can look at companies like BMW or Toyota or safety and livelihood and, and all that. And I'm sure Japan and Germany have really high standards of living, all that, da-da-da-da-da. But when you're looking at these kind of trends... And you're kind of going, well, this country's going down, but just because the you, the yen is weakening, this country is going up only because the yen is weakening. Well, what's the, what what's the economic drive here? What's going on? Veronica Grimm, one of the five council members, stressed that, quote, midterm obstacles to growth are much more important than the current economic weakness, end quote. What do you mean, you grim whore? The panel's chair, Monica Schnitzer, said that, <laughs> I don't like your, I don't like many European names I've discovered. I like British names, French names, uh, but uh, Monica Schnitzner, Monica's a nice name. Schnitzner said that the economy recovery in Germany is delayed. It is still being slowed by the energy crisis and reduced real income caused by inflation. Well, that sounds like Japan as well. They're always saying, it seems like we're on the road to the beginning of a recovery. But when you just re it re what is that in meaning? What does that mean as an inference? It means we're still doing bad. That's that's what it means. Oh, it looks like we're gonna be sunny in five days, according to this weather report. Well, may as well go outside with your jeans and t-shirt on, I guess, right? She noted the central bank's interest rate increases and economic weakness in China have made Germany's trading environment more difficult, while the high interest rates are dampening investment and construction at home. Um, 
so it, there we go. It's um, it's unbelievably strange, isn't it? Uh, I also have some other things going on here. So when I'm trying to like think about these um, these trends and wh- where's the benefit and why are these countries going up and down, it doesn't seem to be anything good. And then my mind goes back to, well, it's because of COVID. We shut down the global economy pretty much and consolidated control at the upper levels for this Build Back Better initiative that only is equal to Build Back Worse. I deal, detail that in the podcast titled Build Back Worse. And they printed all this money digitally and now they need to print more and more and more economic stimulus packages. And you think, well, they want to introduce these central bank digital currencies. Are they purposefully devaluing all of our currencies so that regular wage earners like you and me probably will be forced into a like a smartphone-based digital currency wallet where they can determine how much we get, how much we can spend and the limitations and all that. Then you think, well, that might never happen, but they might just put, they might not make it, they might not roll it out to make it as bad as it seems right now. Like right now it's like, there's a central bank digital currency and it's going to control everything you do. And it's like, well, that's just a conspiracy theory. And then they roll it out. It's like, well, this just controls half the things you do. See, so it's good. So they, they, they level, they layer on the fear and then roll it out. And it's not as bad as it was intended to be, but it's still really bad. And everybody goes, see, you're stupid. I'm using the central bank digital currency. And you said my currency would only be valid for three Three months. Well, it's valid for three years as long as I, my uh, my 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 pride footprint maintains a rating of of I don't know seven or seven colors of the fifty genders of the flags, something like that. I don't know. I don't know. But we're little, Japan is also trying to get in on the um, economic green bonds, and I'm not sure about that either. Uh, Japan's green transition bonds find more open-minded investors. Yes, billionaire hippies. Economy ministry leads industrial decarbonization confronts transition washing fears. Uh, from uh, Mitsuru Obe, the Nikkei Asia chief business news correspondent. Uh, Tokyo. And again, I don't like the Nikkei. I think they're weird. I think they're creepy. They're too close to the Keidan Ren. I mean that literally. The Keidan Ren is like the Japanese business lobby. And the Nikkei is like the building next to the Keidan Ren building is the Nikkei building. They're like two feet apart from each other. And then the Nikkei is allowed in on the on the um, CFR, the Council of Foreign Relations meetings to report, quote unquote. <laughs> You're part of the team, Nikkei. Tokyo. Transition bonds have been a niche financing tool. I say niche and I don't say niche. Never will. I hate the word niche. I'm a niche guy. Transition bonds have been a niche financing financing tool for helping heavy industries transition to net zero. This market will soon get a big boost from the Japanese government, which is preparing to issue the world's first sovereign transition bonds. What? Over the next three, 10 years, the Japanese government is going to issue a total of 20 trillion yen or 100 and 
$33 billion in transition bonds on the fledging market, fled, fledgling market, which has seen $7 billion raised since 2020. Japan hopes that what it calls the GX bonds, green transformation bonds, will catalyze public and private spending worth as much as 150 trillion yen or $1 trillion to realize the develop, deployment of technologies such as hydrogen supply networks, carbon capture and utilization, synthetic fuels, and small nuclear reactors. The total issue will exceed the primary market for corporate bonds and equities in Japan, which amounts to 15 trillion yen a year. Um, and it also says transition bonds are a new favorite for Japanese investors. So let's just review those technologies. And again, as I mentioned earlier, everything is about 2030 and 2050. And it's for these future things. And even when I was at SeaTech, people were showing me carbon capture technology units and they're scalable, like they're modular. So if you need more, you just stack them up on top of each other and you capture more carbon and somehow turn that into sustainable aviation fuel and resell that to um, the airlines at like a 20x profit return, which is what they were assuming it's going to be in 2050. And I'm kind of going, are you sure about that? Are you sure about that? But these are the technologies. Um, realize the deployment of technologies such as hydrogen supply networks. Yes, these make sense to me. Um, I just want to know how they get into my home. Uh, obviously, you can't go down to the hydrogen supply store, get a bucket of hydrogen, pour it over your refrigerator and power it. There needs to be piping and infrastructure. And can you just switch the piping? Is there a switching mechanism for the piping? I don't know. But until that happens, um, it can, I think it's mainly used for ships, actually. It's for the shipping industry uh, for now. But we'll see. Um, carbon capture and utilization. Carbon capture is crazy to me. It's just a way to replace forests with weird technology. Synthetic fuels. Again, I'm not really convinced about the the long-term effectiveness of this, although it could be something such as those shirts that are recycled from aluminum cans. It's like this used to be a bunch of cans and now it's a shirt and it has a value and it has sales and people buy them and you don't really know once you buy it, if it's made from some crazy previous product, but it's recycled and you wear it. So maybe the synthetic fuel supply chain can have a similar um, aspect to it. Uh, and small nuclear reactors. Well, I hope these do take off because instead of just having a centralized nuclear power plant, which is we're like learning is not the best thing, but the amount of power from nuclear power is a pretty great thing. If you could have small ones peppered across a country and powering, um, you know, more regional cities and things like that. Well, you probably reduce the amount of money it takes to transport the energy and um, sort of have a, a centralized decentralization. So instead of having like the Fukushima power plant power everything, you have these small ones dotted across the country and it's like more of like a, a localized version of a nuclear power plant. I, 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 I can see it happening. All right. So that's again, the green transition. Should we click on this link? Let's do it. Transition bonds are a new favorite for Japanese investors. When is this? This is June 19th, 2023. Uh, we're not going to read that. That's too old. All right. Anything else for the economy for today? I think that's fine. Thank you very much. Bye-bye, economy. Does it make sense to you? <clears throat> it just sounds like craziness to me. And I think it is. I think it's all insane 
craziness and that good things are happening not because it's good, but only because somewhere else is worse. Here we go. trove of ancient coins dug up in Guma Prefecture. This stuff's awesome. I love this stuff. The Asahi Shimba. I'll be posting a picture of these coins at MatthewPMBigelow.com. Maibashi. Archaeologists uncovered an estimated 100,000 ancient coins, some of which are of Chinese origin and are more than 2,000 years old. The coins were tied together in bundles with straw rope passed through a hole in the middle. The hall was unearthed in the Sojamachi district at a site where a company plans to construct a factory. Only a small sample of the coins could be analyzed for dating, and the oldest was believed to be a Banliang coin from 175 BC. Those were the first coins minted in a unified China. Because the site was near large residences of important people in medieval Japan, the coins were likely hastily buried, perhaps for safekeeping, because war was in the air. Sound familiar? Get your Bitcoin. The coins were found in an area measuring 60 centimeters by one meter, according to my Nebashi Municipals. So I'll be posting a picture of that. Just kind of interesting how uh, in this country with so many earthquakes and all these buildings kind of constantly being dumped. <laughs> There's a, a trove of 100,000 ancient coins. Now, because of inflation, do you think those coins are worth more now than they were at the time they were buried or less? Should they have invested those coins into building something else? Or is it more interesting that they were buried and found now? I don't know, but imagine saying war is coming. Quick, bury 100,000 coins now. To me, that's just maybe a little bit weird. Have you considered donating to the Japan What Podcast? Of course you have. If we now make it easier than ever, just go to MatthewPMBigelow.com, send us some traffic, review the links, check out the photos and more. We also have a PayPal option for donations at paypal.me forward slash Japan W-U-T. That's paypal.me forward slash Japan W-U-T. We are also part of the growing Podcasting 2.0 infrastructure. Get rid of your podcasting legacy apps, the ones with advertisers, the ones that track you, the ones that will censor you if you're on the pod, uh, Spotify or Apple. Google's gotten rid of their podcasting fleet, so bye-bye to that. Podcasting 2.0 is a network of protocols and a path app developers that allow listeners of podcasts to send Bitcoin directly to the podcaster. No middleman, no intervention, and it's all done lickety-split. I'm using the Podverse app. There's also CurioCaster and Fountain and many others, Podfans. 
it's very interesting to see how this comes in and it allows the user and the podcaster to create a new alternative economy based on protocols and based on Bitcoin. And because it's based on protocols, it doesn't allow for a, a fleet of middle managers to come in and ruin it for everybody like they did on YouTube. So that's MatthewPMBigelow.com. Get yourself a podcasting 2.0 app now, Podverse, for example, and uh, join join that revolution uh, or paypal.me forward slash Japan W-U-T. Don't bury your coins. Don't bury 100,000 coins. Invest them now into the podcasting stratosphere. Uh, all right, what's next? We got Eat the Bugs. I'm gonna eat all the bugs. Okay, you're just gonna eat them one at a time, though, okay? Okay. I got one. I got one. I'm gonna go catch that one. No, finish the one that you have in your mouth first. Yes, of course, the um, eat the bugs is is a growing trend in uh, in the war for mines. Oh, my baby is crying. All right, we got Lisa joining the podcast. You might hear some baby noises in the background, but that's the way we ought to do it. I'm trying to do two podcasts a week, and uh, this is the way it has to be sometimes. So, Lisa, you're going to have to learn about eating the bugs at some time. May as well be from your uh, ever-skeptical father. Are you ready, Lisa? Oh, it looks like it's like a seventh-month, six-month-old baby. <laughs> and, uh, okay, so we got this idea of coming to us from Yahoo. Yahoo is always doing this. They're the chief promoters of bug eating in Japan. And they're trying to target the kids, of course, because no adult really wants to eat bugs. Although I, I have suggested to my son, who's three years old, that he should start eating bugs, and he's not into it either. I put him up on a shelf, and I say, this is going to be your bed for the night. And he goes, what? No. And I say, yes, you're going to sleep here, and if you get hungry, just look for some bugs, and you can have those for dinner. And he goes, no, I don't want those for dinner. I say, you have to try to eat bugs, and he's just not having it. But they're trying to do it anyways through the education system in Japan. And I had a Bloomberg writer tell me that this is a, um, as my, my idea is that it's a conspiracy theory that it's backed by the ESG people. And like, this is the, this is the way that these uh, news articles go. We need to have a sustainable development for the goal of future nutrition. And I go, well, that sounds like an ESG goal. And then the Bloomberg people go, you're a conspiracy theorist. Why would you say that? Well, it's just saying ESG in a different way, but but it's like, well, that's not ESG. I, I don't know. They're kind of saying it is. I seriously had that conversation, by the way, with uh, on on X with a the stupid French Bloomberg writer. They're always terrible. Bloomberg people, they're the worst. We begin. New Zazamushi menu to be offered in Tokyo, created by senior agricultural high school students in Nagano Prefecture. See. It's always some sort of high school initiative. Uh, they will be offering a new menu of pear bugs created by third-year students in the global course of the Community Design Department at Kamina Agricultural High School, who are working to pass on the traditional insect food, Paul Bugs, uh, of Ina Valley, Nagano Prefecture, to the future. Yeah, because everybody knows that you just eat a lot of bugs. This is the way they always do it. 
Yeah, your ancestors ate bugs from this river. That's your culture. That's what you eat. So we're going to work to create a giant um, cicada factory on the edge of your town, pulverize all those crickets into powder, and put them into your bread for your breakfasts. Because that's your culture, and now you're going to eat it. You will eat the bugs. Um, there are two types. There's gohe mochi and ice cream, which have insects clearly visible. On the 29th, the students themselves promoted the event at the store in Asakusa, conveying to people in the city the appeal of Kami-ina, which has a rich natural environment and unique food culture. In May, the students worked with the store's manager, Michiko Miura, to actually cook and develop a new menu. This time, the restaurant is making use of that recipe and selling it to customers. Gohei... Uh the, the rice cakes are made with Kaze no Muro rice diori, a specialty cultivated of Koshikari rice um, in the villages with reduced pesticides and no chemical fertilizers. That sounds fine to me. And the Oshiba Kogen Aji Kobo's Obacha Miso is seasoned with walnuts and sancho. Grilled miso with pomegranate topping. The ice cream is garnished with candy decorations to imitate the four-handed net used to catch Zazamushi in rivers. And its name is Zazamushi Toreo. To visually appeal to the fishing scene, chocolate-coated snails were placed on ice cream. Oh, so they always try to make it like, this is going to be so good. We're going to, it's like vegans. We're going to put all this great stuff in it, and it's going to be vegan. And you have it, and you're like, this tastes like garbage. So we're going to put chocolate. We're going to cover it with all this local veggies. We're going to deep fry some burdock root. Then we're going to cover it with chocolate-covered snails. You're like, what? Everything but the last thing, please. But the last thing is the thing. Um, to visually appear to the fishing scene, chocolate... Because fishermen always love to eat chocolate-coated snails. Um, immediately after sales began, connoisseur insect food fans came to the store one after another and thoroughly enjoyed the insects. An eight-year-old second grader from an elementary school in Tokyo who started visiting the shop because of his insect love said he is a big fan of Zazatain, a furikake developed and commercialized by the global group, adding, it's different from furikake, which is like a flaky thing you put on your rice, and it's delicious. Um, some guy who from Itabashi Ward who has never eaten a beetle said, I was looking forward to it because a high school student who developed an insect food was coming. The texture of the azalea is fresh. I hope they will develop more new products. And it kind of goes on from there. I'm happy to be able to connect with people in the city through Zazamushi. But it's, you know, I'll be posting a picture of this up at MatthewPMBigelow.com. I, I personally really hate this trend. I want, I personally really, really, really hate this trend. What are we doing to our students? They're always wearing masks at these places now. So you go in, it's like an 18 year old wearing a mask and he's cooking up bugs and he's talking about how this is like sustainable few food future for the goal of the, uh, uh, of the environment. And then you say that's an, an ESG thing and you get called a conspiracy theorist for it. So it's a very destructive way to indoctrinate kids into thinking about food. They shouldn't be eating insects. They should be eating steak. They should be eating chicken. They should be eating the veggies. They should be eating natural foods. You don't need a whole bunch of fake sauces on everything either. Just a little bit of little bit of salt and, and you're pretty much ready to go with most foods if you cook it right. But this whole idea of just putting all these foods with bugs and saying, this is your culture. Now eat these bugs 
It's uh, probably in my book. Not I'm gonna have to do something about it. If if the schools that my children end up going to try to do these things, uh, I don't know. I'll probably let my kids try it out because you know why would you ban it? But I would have to have I'd have to let the place know my feelings about it. Probably get them listen to the podcast and get my viewer up. I'm going to eat all the bugs. Okay, you're just going to eat them one at a time, though, okay? Okay. I got one. I got one. I'm going to go catch that one. No, finish the one that you have in your mouth first. All right, we're gonna we're gonna finish off here with um, a little bit of uh, China. So we'll just do this one. We have why the Philippines is exiting the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road is an initiative put by China to create like a new maritime and and uh, maritime roads throughout the world, and um, also developed trains and uh, roads throughout the world to kind of create a new Silk Road so that Beijing can have like a centralized control and move away from the G7. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of those G7 countries don't look to be doing too well and develop into East Central Asia, um, the Middle East and down through Africa and kind of create a a new new world order based on um, Chinese economic models and then implementing the Yuan into those uh, economic models f- based on Chinese tele- telecommunications uh, structures operating on top of the physical infrastructure so that you can have trade being conducted digitally through Huawei networks um, using the yuan with new economies and then bypassing the U.S. dollar in completion. Um, so, but the Philippine president recently, the, oh, you like the Philippines, Lisa? There's Lisa. She's getting a little more active, waking up for her nap. Philippine president Ferdinand Marcos Jr. was not among the, when does this come to us from? This is, okay, I'll say, this is from the Asia Times and it's from November 2nd, 2023. Um, a lot of people will consider the China Belt and Road Initiative a debt trap and it's just dumb. But I mean, when if you're trying to build a new global network of stuff, uh, not everything is going to be hunky-dory all the time. It's not all going to go according to plan. Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. was not among the 23 national leaders who attended last month's Belt and Road Initiative Summit in Beijing, marking the 10th anniversary of the U.S. $1 trillion globe-spanning infrastructure building program. Uh, at the event, Chinese Xi Jinping announced close to $100 billion of new state policy bank financing for the initiative. In a white paper published last month, China maintained the ultimate goal of the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, is to help build a global community of shared future not values. But the Philippines won't be among the recipients of China's largesse or shared future as Marcos Jr.'s administration swerves decidedly away from China's moneyed but troubled program for paving its global influence. In a major development with geopolitical implications, the Philippine Department of Transportation has announced the full termination of a series of big-ticket infrastructures with China in favor of Japanese and Western rivals. Japan, if you listen to the last podcast, just gifted a bunch of... um, 
ships to the Philippines so that they can fight off China in the South China Sea there as China encroaches on Philippine territorial waters. For some reason, China thinks that the entire South China Sea belongs to China. Uh, it's a ridiculous sentiment. China also is considering it to be an Arctic nation as well. Yes, it's ridiculous, isn't it, Lisa? According to the Philippine Senate, nearly all of China's key investment initiatives in the Philippines are now in doubt due to both economic and political factors. The upshot is a new um, nadir in Philippine-China relations, a dramatic about for turn from the past six years of warm engagement under the pro-Beijing uh, Rod uh, Rodrigo Duterte presidency. Now, Duterte shifted away from the United States towards China because... The United States was not helping the Philippines um, with a lot of its agreements and its problems with uh, various factors in the in the South China Sea. So Duterte felt kind of shunned by America. And when Duterte got into power, he shifted towards China. And then China became much more aggressive in the South China Sea, started in for sort of edging in onto Philippine waters. And now with the new administration in the Philippines, they've decided to swerve back into um, America's warm and tender hands. Uh, anyways, that's just kind of an interesting idea that the Philippines now doesn't really want to be the next in line of Taiwan, probably. They want to be maybe considered to be um, more independent. Uh, but I don't know. The Philippines is kind of a shit show. Nothing really is uh, going well for them, it seems. <laughs> I mean, they got nice beaches and pretty girls, which is one thing for sure. Uh, but the idea that uh, the Philippines is going to be this amazing future place, well, I've, I've yet to see it. Um Next one is uh, valued at $1 billion. This is kind of an AI thing. Kai-Fu Lee's large language model startup unveils open source model. Kai-Fu Lee is one of China's um, most successful AI entrepreneurs. In 2017 or 18, he wrote the book AI Superpowers, um, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order. And he was, I really learned a lot from Kai-Fu Lee. And he um, did a big big speaking tour for this book and the book really focused on how China is using AI in its um, business structures not as like some sort of megalithic thing but as a tool to improve business efficiency and so when you look at Chinese business models for AI it's never like the American or Western reaction of Terminator and um, uh, science fiction and the robots coming to life and you know replacing human thought it's very much just like oh this robot can do things faster than a human let's use it in the business oh we can use um, computer vision for improving our storage facilities because it will know the size of things and, and stack them according to how popular they are with our sales records in the cloud okay well let's streamline our, man, our, our, our warehousing using this type of technology and it doesn't make it perfect but it just makes it more efficient than it was before and now instead of managers having to hire whole bunches of people and spend time training them just so that they can quit in a few weeks to go somewhere else now you have a robot that just does that stupid job all the time or you have a camera instead of paying someone to look at a video camera feed you just have the the things that you want that camera feed to analyze constantly doing it and it might not catch everything but it catches more things than a human would and it doesn't take breaks and have babies and things like that right lisa robots don't have babies do they she's being a little quiet a little microphone shy 
Um, so let's take a look at that. So Kaifu Lee is now expanding into the large language model. This comes to us from TechCrunch. Been a while since I've been to TechCrunch. The venture capitalist and computer scientist wants to create an open eye equivalent for China. Um, Kaifu Li, the computer scientist known in the West for his bestseller AI superpowers and in China for his bets on artificial intelligence unicorns, Kaifu Li was also the head of Microsoft Asia and he was also had a big part in Google, if I can remember as well. He's been doing this for a long time and he uh, went to school at Carnegie Mellon in the United States and grew up in like the United States as well. He's a really interesting guy. You go watch his speeches. You won't be disappointed. In late March, Lee launched a company called 01.ai with the vision to develop a homegrown large language model for the Chinese market. The venture puts him in competition with other Chinese tech leaders, including Sogu's founder Wang Xiaoxuan, who have been swiftly gathering talent and venture capital to establish China's equivalence of open AI. Quote, I think necessity is the mother of innovation, and there's clearly a huge necessity in China. And quote Lee, who's 61 and leading the A01.ai as CEO, told TechCrunch in an interview. Um, and it goes on from there. Uh, so, you know, China doesn't have access to a lot of the world internet, and they have to develop it themselves. And uh, for some reason, it's like we have all of these business people and generals and, you know, entrepreneurs uh, disappear for weeks in China. And I haven't seen Kai Fu Li out and about for a while, but he's out and about now. So he seems to be on the good side of the um, CCP. Um if you're interested in Kaifu Li, and I really suggest you look him up because it helps you understand the Chinese markets, go to SinovationVentures.com, SinovationVentures.com, or you can also look at um, Marco Polo, um, uh, Macro Polo, and I forget that last one. I can't name it off the top of my dome right now, but SinovationVentures.com to learn more about Kaifu Li. Um, but we can see that uh, China is now getting in there. Um Last one that we'll look at for today, hold on, I'll read this headline and move on to the next one. Asia's first gay games to kick off in Hong Kong, fostering hopes for wider LGBTQ plus inclusion. Yeah. So if we have women, if I say it's gay to have women at the Naked Man Festival, that's homophobic. But you can also have gay games in Hong Kong and that's inclusive. See how that works? This comes to us from the CarnegieEndowment.org, China's AI regulations and how they get made. Oh, this is written by Matt Sheehan. I think he had a part to, I think he helped ghostwrite AI superpowers. I follow him on Twitter. He's like this guy who's um, really, it's like he's a younger guy, maybe in his 30s or 40s. Um, and he seems to be in, all in on the China thing. So I'm not sure where his loyalties lie. I think he's from California and, and, and grew up in tech. But anyways, um, you can learn a lot from Matt Sheehan too. China is in the midst of rolling out some of the world's earliest and most detailed regulations governing artificial intelligence. These include measures governing recommendation algorithms, the most omnipresent form of AI deployed on the internet, as well as new rules for synthetically generated images and chatbots in the mold of ChatGPT. China's emerging AI government's framework will reshape how the technology is built and deployed within China internationally, impacting both Chinese technology exports and global AI research networks. Um, 
so oh, there's like uh, some figures, the policy funnel of Chinese AI governance. Um, it goes on with, it's quite a long paper, but if you're interested in the um, approach to AI from the uh, Chinese perspective, this is a great place to look at it. I'll just read a couple more paragraphs from Chinese AI governance to date. AI and governance are slippery concepts. Attempting to dissect all government policies that impact this basket of technologies would further muddy China's already murky policymaking process. This paper thus focuses on a specific subset of Chinese measures, national-level policy documents that explicitly and primarily target AI or algorithms for regulation or governance. A lot of the times, algorithms are kind of these older AIs, but once you put algorithms into the cloud and equipped with like automated actions, um, they become much more powerful. And that's really what a lot of AI is. It's just combining various existing low-level um, automated technologies into a platform, putting it into the cloud that then you know has some sort of real-world action. A simple idea would be like a... Uh, Amazon ad you get on your email and it's for something you want. You click on the email and then you click on the purchase button and then a robot in some factory somewhere goes and gets it immediately. Um, all of those things by themselves are not that interesting, but once you stack them together, now you have a very interesting way to make money. Another, another one would be an algorithm that's designed to spot like, you know, uh, uh, I, crime so it's like crime gets reported and then the location of that crime is you know transferred to somebody at a desk they click on a button and it shows the camera operating at that crime scene then the camera has computer vision on it and it shows kind of the alleged criminal holding the alleged weapon and then you can document that and automatically send that to the closest police car and the police will know better what's waiting for them once they get to that point instead of just having to rely on uh, just humans doing it. Now, just humans doing it is also good and necessary because it includes more information that can be fed into databases and help improve the AI, but also you don't want to be too reliant on the AI. But if you stack those human intelligences with the artificial intelligences by having these kind of existing uh, technologies that are stacked together in the cloud with some sort of automation behind them, it creates a whole new business chance as well because, you know, police agencies love to spend money on surveillance. So if you can make surveillance more convenient for them, well, you're going to get a lot of money. And that's a lot of what surveillance capitalism is about, where um, you stack these technologies together and the most profitable way to sell them is to under the guise of some sort of surveillance safety package. So um, this document by the Carnegie Endowment.org, which is its own, you know, mysterious, mysterious form of, of, um, policy setters or influencers in, in the global policy department. It has its own thing about it. But if you're interested in China's AI regulations, I recommend Matt Sheehan. He's been involved in the China AI um, analysis for quite some time now. And it's not just going to be some person who's cynically looking at it going, oh, what a bunch of stupid people thinking AI is going to be something. But he's also not going to be like someone who's like, oh, it's not only called AI, it's also called the digital god that's going to take all your rights. It'll be a very analytical and uh, well worth your time thing to look at, depending on how much time you have. So I think that's going to be it for today. Oh, we got to do Stupid Gaijin of the Week.
Stupid Gadget of the Week. Stupid Gadget of the Week. Stupid Gadget. S-G-O-T-W. Now, Japan is moving into a multicultural society. As the birth population, the, the birth of the natives go down, the birth rate of the natives go down, and the rate of immigration comes up, just like how we have these various... Um, <laughs> How how we have these various uh, co- countries around the world getting better just because other countries are getting worse. Um, we have now have uh, Vietnamese people have the highest number of foreigners arrested, surpassing Chinese people. Backgrounds such as disappearance of trainees. Now at the same time, I have a I, I don't like a lot of the Vietnamese people that are new to Japan. This one's written by Wang Mei Hui from the Sankei Shimbum. Um, the reason I don't like them is because they're very young and they're very rude. They operate a lot of convenience stores and you go into the convenience store and they're chatting with each other like, like, well, these are friendly people. Then you walk past them and they stop talking. They don't say hello. And they just look at you as you walk past. Then you try to go to where the thing that you need in the convenience store and it's not there. It's somewhere else. And then you walk past the ice cream and the ice cream freezer is open and it's been open for, I don't know how long and there's a giant stack of cardboard boxes next to it this happens a lot this type of thing so wh- the the way i engage with the new vietnamese people in the in japan is is often at like oh these people are not the best at what they do I even had one guy in the convenience store start running around the convenience store and he ran into me and he almost ran into my son. And in Japan, you say gomenasai if you're really sorry. And he looked at me and went, which is like saying sorry. And he just continued running away. And so I don't know. But on the other hand, a lot of these uh, people that came to um, Japan from Vietnam did so with a great expense. And then COVID hit and they didn't have very good uh, job opportunities. And the training that they're getting is maybe not so relevant as it used to be because of Japan's aging population. They may not be put into firms with the best technology. And then COVID hit and they lose their jobs and they don't know what to do. So they resort to crime. So at the same time, I don't like them often enough. I still don't don't uh, want to condemn them. Uh, you know, I don't want to say, well, good, they should be criminals. But I will say this. They're often not the most pleasant people to deal with. And I deal with a lot of foreigners in Japan as a foreigner. Interviews with investigators involved in the investigation revealed to the, on the second that the proportion of Vietnamese nationals among the foreign nationals arrested by the Metropolitan Police Department this year is on the rise, surpassing Chinese nationals who have long been the largest group. The Metropolitan Police Department is increasing its vigilance over the disappearance of technical intern trainees and Vietnamese nationals who come to Japan to study, fearing that they may gather in central Tokyo and form groups. According to the Metropolitan Police Department and investigators, 776 of the 2,202 foreign nationals um, arrested by the Metropolitan Police Department from January to September were Vietnamese. On the other hand, Chinese people had the second highest number at 553. Although Chinese people have long dominated the number of visitors throughout the year, it is likely that this year will be the first time Vietnamese people will outnumber Chinese people. 
The number of Vietnamese nationals coming to Japan has been increasing year by year uh, since 2013. Um, Although there was a temporary decline due to the coronavirus, the number of cases increased in 2020, about twice as many as in 2013. That would be crimes. On the other hand, most of the Vietnamese nationals arrested this year, uh, 776, came to Japan for the purpose of technical training, accounting to 406 people. Of these, 344 people were said to have disappeared or remained illegally. Uh, They overstayed their visas. There were also 201 people who overstayed short-term visas to study abroad. Um, All right. So they, uh, let's see. Mm, It doesn't really, I'm not going to go too much, too much into it, but just stop committing crimes. You don't need to come to Japan and commit crimes. It's kind of a not a good place to commit crimes, in my view. Uh, you get a lot, maybe you get away with it a couple of times, but eventually you get caught. So that's going to be the stupid gaijins of the week. Vietnamese, stop being stupid criminals in Japan. Stupid gaijin of the week. I feel bad for stupid saying <laughs> You found it. We're going to call it a day. Uh, Welcome to, or you've been listening to the Japan What Podcast, episode 117. What was the shit? What was the title I was going to give it? I can't remember. Uh, Lisa is here listening to me rant, and she's been relatively quiet on my knee. My leg is sleeping, and I will say it's been the armpit of Asia, the Shinjuku Studios in Tokyo, Japan. Go to MatthewPMBigelow.com, get a Podcasting 2.0 compliant app, and until next time, everybody, ja mata ne. You